automation will make healthcare more efficient and less prone to error. Today, machine learning is already being used to diagnose diabetic retinopathy and improve radiology accuracy. Someday, an AI assistant will assist a doctor in working through a complicated differential diagnosis. Our hospitals look roughly the same today as they did 10 years ago, because getting new technology into the hands of doctors and nurses is a slow process. Just ask anyone who has tried to sell software in the healthcare space. But technological advancement in healthcare is inevitable. Cosima Gretin is a medical doctor and a product manager with Carius DX, a company that is building a diagnostic tool for infectious diseases. She writes about the future of healthcare, exploring the ways that workflows will change and how human biases could impact the diagnostic process, even in the presence of sophisticated AI. I enjoyed this conversation with Cosima, and I am still looking to do more shows about healthcare and the intersection of health and technology. So if you've got ideas, please send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Cosima Gretton is a medical doctor and a product manager with Carius DX. Cosima, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Thanks very much for having me. Today we're talking about some various applications of machine learning or artificial intelligence in healthcare, which you have written about some online. What are the low-hanging fruit opportunities for AI to positively impact healthcare? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because their uh, healthcare is so broad and heterogeneous that I think the low-hanging fruit arise at the intersection of where machine learning is particularly good and humans are particularly bad. And I think that particular intersection at the moment we're seeing companies arise in that space of image recognition. So machine learning is applied to radiology, pathology, any task in clinical medicine where a human has to detect an anomaly in, in a very complex image. I was speaking to a company called Analytic a couple of years ago, actually, and they were talking about how, you know, a single radiologist can spend three months learning, you know, six or so features on a, on a scan of a lung that helps them detect lung cancer, whether there's kind of slight speculation or a cloudy little shape. But obviously, a machine learning algorithm can learn 200 features in a matter of milliseconds. And so the speed and, and performance of machine learning algorithms over humans, I think, is a huge advantage in, in that particular vertical of healthcare. Yeah, I was at a conference at Google. This is a TensorFlow conference. And one of the main presentations that people were really excited about was, you might have seen this, this diabetic retinopathy thing where they just did this huge study of how do doctors perform when identifying patients with diabetic retinopathy versus how the machine learning model performs. And the machine learning model was just straight up better over a large data set. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, think, and I think that's, you know, to be expected. We are, you know, historically there's been a lot of studies in human perception that go back many, many years looking at human perception in air traffic control situations or human perception in scanning of baggage. We have multiple different you know, issues with the way we perceive things where we have change blindness, we, we have issues with visual search and attention, and, you know, environmental factors and stress can, can exacerbate that. So I think there's a huge advantage with these systems. 
I don't believe it will remove the functions of the people who did those those roles before. It'll just change their roles in the future because there's, you know, the, we've seen this in medicine already, the more often more technology you bring in, you need people to manage it and then their roles evolve into, into new areas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll save that conversation for a little bit later if we get yeah. to it. I know you've written about the dire conditions that some hospital workers are enduring and it's kind of like it seems like automation could really help out it's not you know it's not like people are going to lose jobs we've got more work than we can do today okay so image recognition stuff is the low-hanging fruit what are the big ambitious opportunities that seem crazy today but in 10 to 20 year time horizon are actually plausible yeah, I think that there are two areas here, which is, I think the main one is, is diagnosis and being able to capture kind of, you know, the full medical ontology to make predictions and diagnoses of a patient's particular condition. And I think that, I think that those are challenging from a number of aspects and very exciting. So, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of hubris around this field and they talk about how you could predict someone who's going to have heart failure in the next six months or you know, determine who is going to be more likely to have a readmission. Now, we have algorithms, models that can do that based on very highly cleaned and trained data sets. However, the practicalities of implementing those in, into clinical practice, I think, are what is going to make that very challenging. And I think those come in in multiple different buckets. So one, one big challenge for applying machine learning in a, in a diagnostic capacity and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about kind of diagnosing from an image, I'm talking about what happens when, you know, a patient comes to the door and they have multiple different symptoms, they look a certain way, they have certain bloods, you know, they, they have a patient history that's written in text. There's so many different sources of data that come in that a doctor is absorbing because we have multi-sensory perception. So we can, we can not only read and listen, but we can touch and feel, you know, the temperature of the patient, are they clammy, are they sweaty? And so, being able to capture all of that currently with the systems and the technologies that we have is going to take a very, very, very long time to be able to get that full 360 degree perspective on a patient. And until you have that 360 degree perspective, being able to, you know, satisfactorily reliably diagnose someone, you know, out of all the potential medical conditions that there are, I think is going to be very challenging. The other factor is, you know, I, I tend to think about when you take machine learning algorithms in, in diagnosis, is it diagnosing or is it predicting? And also, if it's is it a novel finding or is it along the lines of an existing protocol? And so I think that there are also challenges in, in that space. So one of the issues with diagnosing versus predicting what something's gonna, uh, something, whether something's going to happen is that it's all very well to say, okay, this particular model can predict that someone's going to have heart failure in six months' time. But when you bring that into clinical practice, there are no guidelines and there are no protocols as to what the hell you do when someone doesn't have heart failure now but is going to in six months' time. There's guidelines to say if someone's you know legs start to get puffy, it happens in heart failure, okay, we well, need to increase a certain heart failure medication to reduce that swelling. But if that's going to happen in six months from now, what do you do to that medication? If you increase it now, their blood pressure is going to drop. And so you know, we did the medical science around the treatment and the intervention in advance, you know, is, is still not there yet. Preventative care is, is relatively limited. So, and then there's the other issue around, is it a novel 
diagnosis or prediction or association, or is it one that's already written in the protocols? And I think that's also has a big impact on the level to which we'll be able to engender trust in these devices and these technologies amongst physicians. Because if a model is you know, making a diagnosis or a prediction that is quite within the realms of kind of general practice of medicine that someone can corroborate with their experience and they can look at the patient and say, yeah, okay, that model has said that, that kind of makes sense, you know, and I might not have spotted it, but it's helping me. That's fine. If it's making very new associations that the doctor doesn't understand or medical science hasn't yet discovered, that's really exciting, but that's a lot harder to get into clinical practice and will take many, many, many more years. So people tend to lump, you know, machine learning and healthcare into this one kind of gigantic bucket, and there's just so many different angles and verticals to it. So picking that apart will be really exciting over the next kind of, you know, 10 years or so. I have a quote from you. Well-designed, integrated, and intelligent software may go a long way towards reducing deaths due to medical error, but new kinds of errors will arise. Experts using technology are subject to all sorts of cognitive and decision-making biases that also need to be taken into account, end quote. So you mentioned a moment ago that the current-day diagnosis is often skewed by bias, and that's why is one reason why an image recognition machine learning model for identifying a tumor or diabetic retinopathy is really useful because you're not overly skewed by the biases of a single individual who's been diagnosing diabetic retinopathy for a decade. You have a giant data set of diabetic retinopathy and non-diabetic retinopathy things that might look like diabetic retinopathy that give you a large-label data set that incorporates all biases and subjectivity that you could potentially factor into a large data set of images. But but here you're saying that even if we have this this kind of stuff, this this machine learning, you know, this this model driven diagnosis and perhaps treatment, even in this scenario, humans are still going to be involved and there's still going to be cognitive and decision making biases that are going to arise. What are you talking about here? Explain what these mm. new biases are. Yeah, so I think that the first thing to clarify is that, it's that humans will still be involved. I, I don't agree with you know certain perspectives around full automation of of doctors. I think when you look at you know if you look at shopping or supermarkets that have automated checkouts, because you're dealing with a world where there's people involved in shopping and these automated checkouts, you need to have someone to deal with them when they mess up. People are messy, and so there will still be even if you automate kind of 99% of medicine, there'll still be human operators. So what I mean then is that when you have a human operator operating one of these systems is that, you know, I guess it depends on the performance of the system. So there are different areas that arise, but I would imagine most systems would not have uh, performance characteristics, you know, that are, that are perfect. There are obviously going to be, when you apply it into clinical practice issues, moments where the, where the system fails. And one of the things about automation that's been extensively studied is, is something called automation bias. So automation bias is when you have a human operator that is using an automated system and they tend to slip into what's called a commission and omission bias. So they will tend to do the thing that the system recommends. They will commission biases when they'll do the, the thing that the system recommends, even if the, the thing is wrong. And, so, and then omission bias is where they, they won't do the thing because the system didn't recommend it, even when they perhaps should have. So it's, it's about complacency, and it's about over-reliance on the system, 
over-reliance for the system to detect things. And, and if it hasn't detected it, the assumption that it wasn't there. And so, you know, if these systems aren't 100% perfect, which they won't be, there is going to be a gap where the systems fail to perform and the user over-relies upon them. So you can see it very clearly in things like aviation. So if you look at the 2009 crash, the Air France crash, the pilot relied overly heavily, it was the one that was going Paris to Brazil, I think, on the automated system. And when that failed, was unable to you know, manage the plane. And so I think that's, that's one aspect is automation bias when the system fails. The other one is around the fact that when you speak of healthcare, you don't just speak of patient, a doctor and a machine. You also talk about the multidisciplinary team that is around it. And so, you know, systems can, humans have a certain trust amongst each other as to their professional expertise. And equally, they have trust, you know, to machines as their ability in terms of their ability to have a certain performance. And if a machine makes a certain diagnosis, that diagnosis then propagates amongst the team. And so the team then spreads that diagnosis uh, amongst the, the physiotherapists or the primary care practitioner or the nurses. And you get something called diagnostic momentum, whereas once, mm. once, once a decision has been made and either a human or a device has said, okay, this is the diagnosis, that diagnosis gets perpetuated and propagated. Mm. If it is incorrect, it is often a lot harder to, to counteract. And I know this sounds completely mad, but it does happen a lot in clinical practice where you have multiple different teams and doctors seeing a patient and they'll look at the chart and they'll have a diagnosis X, Y, Z, medication A, B, C. And because it's there and it's been made by someone else or made by a machine, it's a lot less likely to be questioned. And so if a algorithm you know, is, is prone to an error, you have to understand that not only will there be biases with the operator that's immediately you know, working with that system, but also that error will be perpetuated amongst the care team and will be a lot harder to subsequently challenge. Yeah, because it's a differential diagnosis and it's basically like a decision tree. And once you get five levels deep into the decision tree, and then you have to say, oh, actually, we made a mistake four levels ago and or, or oh, there's a hypothesis four levels back that we should have tested or we'd yeah. like to test in retrospect. It's, it's kind of hard to like roll back. Yeah. And, and new information arises all the time. You know how you go into hospital and people ask you your patient history kind of 20 different times. A lot of that is actually because people tell different stories different times and patients will forget things. You know, I, I, myself as a patient, I will forget things because you are unwell. And so, you know, with a diagnosis that the system has made at a certain point may not subsequently be correct in the light of new information. And if that system doesn't have access to that information, there's a perfectly reasonable chance that it will be incorrect. I think that when we talk about, you know, these image recognition software, I think that that's a slightly different situation where you're using it in a very, very isolated context. And you're only asking it to do a very narrow task which is just to look at that particular image. Subse- you know, additional context will, will be provided and, and actions will be provided by the physician. You're not asking it to take a more holistic view. Hmm. Okay, so there are environments that have highly routine things within them, like shipping yards and warehouses that have become heavily automated with success. And, you know 
well, I think of a hospital as a place where there's a lot of routine behavior. And certainly there's some, there's non-routine behavior where you have lots of edge cases and you really want a human in the loop, but there is certainly a lot of it that could be automated. Have you do you have any perspective for where we're going to be in terms of automation in 5 or 10 years? Like mm-hmm. are the bedpans going to be cleaned robotically or you know, what yeah. it, what's going to change? I think, you know, when you look at you know, the automation of healthcare, I think what's really interesting is to think about the information. So machine learning, you know, itself is one task, but things either side of that. So you need to look at things like reimbursement, the speed at which guidelines and practice changes and all of the kind of ecosystem around the the technology, because healthcare is incredibly perverse in terms of the way that it's paid for. I'm from the UK and it's it's pretty perverse there, but it's a little simpler than over here. I'm just learning about your system. <laughs> and, but one of the, the main things that I think will prevent that happening is that it may not necessarily be something that is paid for. So one of the challenges that you know we talked about is just data entry. Doctors do a hell of a lot of data entry and they do a hell of a lot of, they spend an awful amount of time kind of coding and And actually, that's not an efficient and productive way to use their time. However, because we pay, because the way we pay for healthcare doesn't value the way doctors spend their time sometimes, those things aren't likely to actually find a way in. The way I describe it is that healthcare is a bit like a kind of a mountain through which there are grooves through which money flows, like water flows downstream, right? And you have to find those grooves through which water flows. And so... Current models of healthcare pay based on activity. And so if it is something that you can easily bill for, and that often means things that are very technical. So anesthesiologists, for example, can bill for lots of things because they do things like put lumbar punctures in, put lines in, whereas a psychiatrist or a neurologist can't bill for so many things because there's not so many kind of active procedures that they can do. And so what we're trying to move towards is a payment based on outcomes. So billing for the fact that the patient is actually feeling better rather than just billing for what we did to them, billing for the outcome that they experienced, which seems kind of crazy that we don't actually pay for patient outcomes. We only pay for just activities. But I think as we move towards paying for patient outcomes, that will probably mean that technologies that improve efficiency and quality of care will be more likely to be reimbursed. So the patient outcomes are measured in two different ways. You've got kind of clinical and social outcomes And you've got psychological outcomes and and patient experience measures. So this is all about, okay, fine, I've had a knee replacement, but am I feeling, you know, back to normal? Am I able to look after my kids? Did I have an okay time in the hospital? And the things that affect that may be things like, you know, improving the efficiency, automating some of what, what doctors do so they can spend more time speaking to the patient, you know, rather than documenting and can communicate the patient's care better and give them a better experience. Hmm. Whereas currently, communicating to the patient, giving them a better experience and explaining things is not something that that you can easily bill for. And so it just depends on the payment models. And I think that any company that is trying to bring machine learning into healthcare, the main thing you have to understand is how things are paid for, because otherwise you'll never get the product in. And that's one thing I think is quite interesting is when you speak to, spoken to a few machine learning companies recently who are looking at using natural language processing on patient records and the kind of negative side of following the money is that often these companies tend to provide all of this amazing analytics and data extraction on these patient records, 
for insurance companies, but not actually for frontline clinical practice. So I think, you know, I think that following the money is you need to do it. But equally, I'm not sure it often necessarily leads to providing the benefit of that technology to the people who actually need it, which is the clinicians. It's, it's also hard to just scale the mountain of selling a product or presenting a solution, even a beta test of a solution, into the medical industry because you have to get buy-in from a lot of people who are just, they're already overwhelmed with the amount of medical work that they're doing. They're, they're not necessarily technologists, they're nurses or doctors or surgeons, and you know, I follow Atul Gawande, and he he writes about this with you know, this was like the the whole he wrote a book on the checklist manifesto that about just trying to yeah. get clinical practitioners to use a checklist. Like he's like, okay, we showed that if you use a checklist and like say these are the things to do during surgery, like make sure you count the number of sponges on the on the operating table before and after an operation to make sure you don't leave a sponge in somebody's brain. Like you you want to have a checklist and pilots have checklists and blah, 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 blah. And even just the technology of introducing a checklist was so reviled and there was so much outcry to a lot of the people you talked to. It took a while for him to evangelize it. So for the people who are have been successful at scaling that mountain of understanding the medical environment and actually successfully bringing a new product into or new service or new ideology into clinical environments, what do they do right, or what exactly is there is the approach? And I, yeah. by the way, I, real quick, I just you know a separate anecdote I think is worth pointing out is this company Oscar, which is like doing the health insurance, like they, basically they built a health insurance company, but their realization was that they needed to build a full stack of health stuff because the pre-existing industry was so entrenched they wouldn't yeah. be able to experiment and do interesting things and innovate. So they're like, okay, well, not only do we need to build an insurance company, we need to build clinics, we need to recruit doctors, we need to get everything, yeah. the full stack of healthcare, because we can't, we just simply cannot integrate with the pre-existing yeah. system. I think that's very funny. Ginger as well, ginger.io mm. did that. I think they, they initially tried to bring in a technology that was, you know, predicting depression and relapse and using smartphone sensor data, subsequently found that the mental health systems just were not you know, able to cope with that. I mean, it was just was well beyond their abilities. So they've built the full stack and they have their own psychiatrists. And yeah, so I think I think that, I mean, if I knew the answer to that question, I would not be here right now. I don't know what I'd be doing, <laughs> but I think that's the answer that many people are looking for. I think that the first thing it begins with is clinical evidence. And, you know, as Atul Gawande mentioned you know, he, he he provided evidence for it first, and then there was the challenge of implementation. And I think that many people try to do it first without evidence. And doctors are very black and white about things where they feel like if there's data, then that will, you know, mean that we can, that's highly motivating for them to make the change. However, it's obviously not the answer, I'd say. It's like, it's like laying the foundations. The next step, I think there are some people in the UK, someone, uh, one particular company that was very successful in getting their product into different hospitals. And, and one, one quick thing about the UK is that the NHS is not as, like a single market. You don't just get your product into the NHS and then it's in the NHS. You do have to go hospital to hospital and they all tend to be quite different. So he went hospital to hospital. There's a company called Doctor Doctor, which is basically 
It's very simple appointment scheduling software, which sends text messages to patients when they their appointment time and allows them to cancel. And very, very simple, but much needed. One of the things that he did very successfully is in each institution, he would spend a lot of time understanding, you know, the layout of the land of who was who. And not only who was who in terms of their kind of roles and power, but who was who in terms of their roles and motivations and desires. So what he found was that actually going necessarily to like the top level person who you think should make the decision is not always the way you get in. Actually, he found a kind of middle level manager who was really passionate about digital health, who wanted in her career to make her next move into digital health. And she was his kind of champion. And so what they did was they set up a very, very small pilot and gathered evidence and data and in a very tiny part of the system. And then they presented that to the wider group. And he, you know, he, he just kind of followed along in her footsteps and she brought him into the, into the hospital. It took a year or two, but, you know, they got in. I think, I think that is the challenge as well, is that, like, the timelines on which this happens are not startup timelines. They are, yeah. you know... <laughs> so that was yeah, are born and die in those timelines. So, but yeah, so I think I think data and evidence, and then really understanding the motivations and and the drivers of the people that you're you're trying to work with, and not necessarily assuming that roles have have all the power. That timeline of innovation is that changing at all as the current generation of doctors rotates out and younger people rotate in? I. Don't know, and I, I would probably, if I were going to take a guess, I'd, I'd say no, because mm. it takes a long time to train in medicine. It is a very, you know, it's a very risky environment, and it's a little bit like, one of the things I used to like in it too, is a little bit like you learn Spanish, and you go to Spain to work in Spanish, and you don't want someone changing the language while you're there too much, right? Because that's going to mm. screw up your ability to work. And so you learn medicine, you learn the language, you learn it takes a long time to learn it. And then you get to a point where you can practice it and a huge, huge changes to practice unless, you know, it can be, can be very kind of disconcerting mm. and can cause a lot of anxiety. And I think that's probably where this, you know, where, where resistance comes from is I'm dealing with someone who's critically ill. I need to be in control of the situation and let things in and let things out. And I think equally the other bit of resistance as well comes from autonomy so I don't I, that's another factor I don't think will change with the new breed you know younger physicians coming in is that you often go into medicine because you are you like a sense of independence and autonomy which is being eroded by protocols and, and guidelines but you know that sense of autonomy can be threatened by checklists and by mm technology because it takes the power away from the doctor to say well actually you know I'm the expert and this is what I think so I think that you have to really tread carefully with the way you speak to doctors about these things Uh. and and I think that a lot of radiology companies these machine learning and radiology companies have realized that and you know have messaged around you know saying radiologists this is to help augment your practice and we will provide you with a user interface that the system highlights where you should be looking rather than just saying, we'll do it. And I think that, you know, yeah, you have to, you have to accept that doctors are kind of the gatekeepers because they do need to be because they're dealing with people's lives. You know, it's, it's, it's a unique system. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about the company that you're working at and the science that sort of the products that you're developing. I think it could be an interesting case study up against the topics we've already discussed. So you work at Carius DX. What is Carius DX doing? Yeah, so it was spun out of Stanford, a research group led by Steve Quake, who was one of the pioneers of a technology that uses cell-free DNA. Basically, what we do is we, we take blood samples from patients who are often inpatients, who are sick with an infection. We send the plasma and we spin it down and we extract the cell-free DNA. Now, cell-free DNA is basically in the blood. You have lots of tiny, tiny fragments of DNA, RNA, microRNA floating around. There's, you know, 99.99% of it. I don't know the exact number is, is your own DNA, but a very, very, very small fragment is microbial DNA. If you, and particularly if you have an infection, that's obviously you know, a greater proportion. So we separate out the human and the microbial cell-free DNA, and we then sequence it. So we use Lumina Next Generation Sequencing, and we then have a database of 15,000 reference genomes, which are curated, cleaned up from publicly available ones. And then we have a a kind of a clinical database, a 1250, which are curated for clinical relevance. And we align the reads that we find from sequencing with the database of 1250 microorganisms. And we're able to report on the presence or absence of, of any of those 1250. So what it does is it allows us to do things like see very deep-seated infections that other tests can't detect because the other tests there just isn't the presence of other tests rely mm. on presence of whole microorganisms in the blood. We just need tiny fragments or other deep seated. So deep seated infections might be deep abscesses. They might be brain infections. It also allows us to detect bugs that can't be detected by other tests because they don't grow. So other tests rely on the growth of an organism to diagnose it, whereas we don't. So we're very good at detecting things like fungi invasive fungal infections, things like that. And so our range is the broadest that there is on the market today, mm. and it covers a lot of organisms that other tests can't detect. Yeah, it's a very exciting exciting new technology, and we are battling the bringing a, a diagnostic into healthcare fight as well. So, <laughs> The fungal topic I find interesting. I think I read something recently that was like, oh gosh, I, I think it was like out connecting Alzheimer's to fungal stuff or something, something like that. But it was, I think one of the thrusts of, you know, I probably just read the abstract, but I think one of the thrusts of it was like, you know, fungal problems could be causing like a lot more than we realize. Is, is that consistent with when you're, when you're talking to people on the cutting edge? Is Are fungal issues sort of like a black box? Yeah, I think that, I mean, we tend to deal with fungal infections with people who ha are immune compromised. So right. our, our core product deals with those those kind of infections where you have a fungus that would not normally, well, we don't think would normally cause a problem in a healthy healthy human. But when someone's immune compromised from cancer treatment or from HIV, mm. for example, then, then they wreak havoc. I think your question is really interesting. So we have a department called Carriers X, which is our kind of moonshot department. And um, basically, that's where we conduct those kind of studies. So we are actually investigating a few really exciting topics like the pathogenicity of, of microorganisms and Alzheimer's disease. So whether or not there is a link between some kind of infection and Alzheimer's, we, haven't, we don't have a hypothesis as to what that might be. Anyone of the 1250 on our, on our list 
you know, we're, we're kind of agnostic at the moment, it's just exploratory. And the other study we're looking at is preterm cord, uh, sorry, preterm birth. So whether or not you can detect the presence of an infection in women who subsequently have preterm labor, because that's often considered to be a cause of preterm labor is, is, a, is a uterine infection. You must have seen this video of like, I saw this on planet Earth a long time ago, but like the ant where it gets the fungus in its brain and then it climbs to the top of the plant mm. and then like yeah. the ant dies and then like the fungus grows in the sunlight. It's like disgusting. It's just this horrifying feature of nature where you have this fungus that just takes over your brain. And then there was a video game called The Last of Us that kind of like took this to the to, to another level. But it's kind of terrifying, and like I don't think there's yeah. been much like research that countervails the idea that we could, there could be fungus everywhere that's that's controlling our brain, right? Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting phenomenon, isn't it? And I think there's another one with a rat, which the toxoplasmosis. Yeah, and it it means the rat will put itself in the path of like a cat. Yes. And yeah, that's it. It's toxo, and there is actually, I mean, it's very dubious and kind of much debated evidence that there may be a link between toxoplasmosis and some forms of psychosis and schizophrenia but again that's it's it's very kind of yeah it's not really established yet and then there's other what was the other you know the other there's some really interesting research done by a professor at university of york called john cryan who looks at the influence of the microbiome on mental health. Mm-hmm. And he found an association between... So he looked at... He, he gave a different mice bread to have different degrees of what you call behavioral despair. So it's a... You can breed mice in it and, and it was, it's a trait used in the studies to assess the efficacy of Prozac. So you have this mouse that has high levels of behavioral despair, kind of behavioral depression, and a mouse that, that is... The happy mouse, and he showed that you could do a fecal transplant from the depressed mouse to the happy mouse, and you could you would translate that behavior over to this this happy mouse, and that if you then cut the vagus nerve, which is a nerve that innervates the gut, comes up up through the neck. If you cut the vagus nerve, you actually remove the effect. So that was pretty interesting because we you know we know from kind of just even language that the mind can affect the gut in that, you know, when you're nervous, you know, your stomach starts to feel weird and, you know, butterflies in your stomach. If you're in love with someone, you can feel it. You know, there's all kinds of emotions that are transmitted to the gut and the gut has, you know, the large number of neurons second to the brain. But we don't have much evidence to say what happens when you have a gut pathology to the brain. And so I think there was some, and this is where I'm getting hesitant but there's some evidence around alzheimer's in the gut anyway i'll leave that because i can't remember it yeah john Cryan, really really interesting research mm. on the microbiome so what about pandemics and epidemics i guess both questions are how at risk is our population to a pandemic or an epidemic today natural or man-made and what kinds of diagnostic tools do you have within carious that help i identify that or predict it or what kind of what's the product line is how does it reflect the probability of pandemic or epidemic yeah so i think that we i mean you know it it all depends on how widespread the use is i think what's exciting about our product is that it's inherently digital and so 
you know, with greater use, you can start to map out the presence of different pathogens across different locations. So we, you know, we we are across 20 different organizations in the US at the moment and, you know, can map out what microorganisms are present at what locations in that particular patient population. We don't have enough data at the moment to make any interesting inferences from it, but in the future that would be something that we may be able to start to detect early on patterns you know, at evolving sites. For example, you could start to see the emergence, you know, increased incidence of MRSA or C. difficile at a certain hospital over another hospital and potentially we with, you know, ward by ward. In terms of other outbreaks, so I think the exciting thing about what we can do is that we have a very rapid turnaround time. So, you know, within one day, we can find a result on any of the, the 1250 organisms, which for many organisms is incredibly fast. For some, there are faster diagnostics, but, but only for a few of those. So, for example, there is a current outbreak occurring of something called Mycobacterium chimera, which is a a bug normally found actually just in kind of environmental water and soil, but it was contaminating some of these devices used in cardiac surgery, which, so they're devices that they cool and they, they, they kind of keep the blood warm. Uh, they're called a heated cooler device. And so when you do heart surgery, you take the blood out of the body and you, you pump it through this device. And this device is found to be contaminated at the source with this bug. And so anyone who's had heart surgery in the last five years, and that could be just a valve, it could be bypass, is at risk of having an invasive mycobacterium chimera infection. The mortality, so the, the time at which you develop it is about, can be months to three years after the surgery, three or four years after surgery, but the mortality is around 40% if you develop it. But the bug takes like four to six weeks to grow in traditional methods, and so we can detect it within one day. And I think that's been really, really exciting. So we've been working with lots of hospitals around those cases and being able to diagnose them early means that, you know, you don't you, you can then provide the correct antibiotics to mm-hmm. that for that patient, you know, in the appropriate time frame. So yeah, and I, I think there's there's so many different potential opportunities. Mm. It's just about widespread use as much as we can. So mm. in the catastrophe of antibiotic resistance where are we with that? Is that like still just like terrifyingly lack of progress or what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's still a major issue. It's still a major, major issue. And I think we will, you know, we see more and more antibiotics become less useful. You know, one of the main things really is is getting a diagnosis early, identifying what it is before you, you know, leave that patient on broad antibiotics, antibiotics for days and days and days is the most important thing narrowing down the treatment so yeah we are still you know the world is still facing that potential potential disaster <laughs> yeah so i, I know we're, we're wrapping up on time but I, just a few more questions so this company theranos that i was following this company pretty closely this basically they were doing small vials of blood and trying to develop robust identification of problems yeah. with that a lot of money went into it, and it just seems like it was just kind of a, a nice story. Probably there was some science there, but kind of mismanagement and conspiracy. Really good story if anybody wants to look it up. I think a movie's being made about it right now with Jennifer Lawrence. But did this cast a shadow over health tech at all, or do people basically 
regard that as like isolated incident, like totally crazy cautionary tale, but you know, this is not going to slow down investment. I think for the health technology industry, which is decades and actually centuries old, you know, we, particularly in the biotech space, it's an isolated incident. It is a company that for some reason or other did not think it necessary to provide evidence for its claims, which is something that if you work in biotech, particularly is, you know, bread and butter. And so, you know, the ethos that Theranos held is not reflective of the wider industry in terms of the way the rest of the industry behaves. And, you know, I think everyone was shaken by it, but I don't think more just because it now, it brought into light an industry to, you know, the wider world that normally was carrying on with its own business and being very effective and, you know, performing very well. And now it's kind of shed a, a negative light to, to people who wouldn't normally know about biotech or normally understand it, they just know about Theranos. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the irritation is that we've been continuing to do what we do for many, many years and performing very well and providing evidence. And, you know, this company has kind of, yeah, cast a bad light on it. So mm-hmm. I think that's the general attitude towards it. But mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So last question. I did an interview a while ago about a cloud lab. I, I can't remember what the name of it was. I always I always forget the name of it. Transcriptic? But Transcriptic, that's what it was. Yep. So they have basically a thing where, you know, you it's essentially supposed to be like AWS for your biology. So if you need if you if you're just in a dorm room and you want to get some kind of testing done, some sort of you know, you can just send, mail them a sample they will do the the work for you and send you back the results and they do all kinds of stuff it's basically your biology lab is a service and they have a fully automated like basically a robotic arm that interfaces with all these it's pretty funny cuz it interfaces with all these old pieces of technology yeah. and they you know they reverse engineer the PCR machine and the like centrifuges and like uh, uh, to, to be able to interface with this robotic arm and have a fully automated cloud laboratory but so i look at this and i'm like this seems like it could be really useful for up-and-coming scientists do you think this kind of stuff is or or maybe do you work with this these kinds of companies how is the accessibility of bio robots or (laughs) cloud laboratories i mean there's also emerald cloud laboratory i think that has a similar approach this clearly there's a market developing so how how are these going to change things yeah, I think they're really exciting. We, we, we know Transcriptic and uh, visited them actually recently. They, so we, we have our own lab with our own processes, but certainly Transcriptic and, and, and there are other companies that can help you. I think the barrier to entry with biotech, I think, is still high, but is reducing and that you can, you know, outsource some of the, the lab processes that you want to run, experiments you want to run. You can get supply companies to build you gene chips, package them and send them off to you know as a product to consumers so yeah i think there's a i think that's a really exciting space with with the ability to reduce the costs and you don't have to buy the capital equipment and you're able to use one of these these companies yeah no really exciting we don't use them at the moment but mm. we definitely yeah definitely wear them mm. indeed okay well kozuma it's been great talking to you wide range of conversation enjoyed it a lot and look forward to your future writings and whatever else Carius comes out with i'm sure you got some interesting stuff in the lab Yes, indeed. Yeah, we do. Lots of really interesting data. So, yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. It yep. was a pleasure, pleasure to be on your show, and I look forward to following it. Cool. 